In today's sermon, um, in my heart, it's going to bless your socks off, you go away, change, and your life will never be the same again. Uh, but unfortunately, it comes through my experiences and my words, and so this truth sort of God's planted is going to sort of stutter and start, but hopefully you'll hear uh, from God as Amen. we go through it. Um, and the job before the one I am in now, uh, we were sent away on a residential trip. It was the days before um, a sort of uh, every penny counts and they sort of, uh, we were new recruits and they sent us off to some hotel near uh, Goodwood and it was a residential trip, like we were only on like three pounds an hour, uh, but still they uh, got this open bar and this various other things. And so we had this team building moment, and uh, no one likes those, do they? We have to uh, kind of become best friends with people that you wouldn't choose to uh, like even sit aside next to in the bus, let alone uh, uh, share uh, your most intimate details about. So we were doing this team building thing, and uh, uh, some indoctrination, you know, we are the best company, we're gonna take over the world. And uh, there was a one point where you had this classic moment where you were like, um, shown rubbish. It looked like a pile of rubbish to us and then we were invited. Each team had to make a construction out of that that represented the company. And you're like, what? What are you talking about? I would rather, you know, like just sort of lean back with my eyes closed and let them catch me rather than do this uh, uh, nonsense. So anyway, we all got together with uh, bits of toilet roll and paper and sellotape and some sort of Blue Peter nightmare. We were constructing uh, 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 this sort of uh, uh, building. And uh, then we were told we had to give a presentation on this. Um, I am not very artful or artistic uh, or architecturally um, inclined. Um, so I was like, you know what? Um, uh, I'll do the, the talking bit. You can get on with that and I'll do the talking bit. So I went home and, and uh, you can beat me at most things, but you can't beat me usually at homework. So there I was in my room studying away, trying to come up with a, a good presentation uh, uh, to represent this building. So anyway, so we came to the uh, climax of the residential trip. We had this rather sad looking sort of toilet roll hill in the middle of this uh, uh, table and we were surrounded by the brightest and best of this multi-million pound company that we were part of. And uh, there I stepped forward uh, and uh, I'm gonna give my uh, presentation. And uh, so I gave this talk that I'd spent quite a bit of time on, how this toilet roll represented getting the future and this, that and the other. And uh, it went down quite well, and I, I got some plaudits at the end. And then uh, uh, one of uh, uh, the top guys' minions came to me and go, you know, the big boss of the company wants to talk to you. And I was like, oh, and he like, wants to talk about your future in the company. I was like, yes, here we go. <laughs> this, this is my moment. And, uh, uh, and I was expecting, um, already, like I hadn't even met the guy, and I was, uh, had dreams of, you know, like the best company car. Um, I had uh, uh, sort of, uh, uh, sort of like racking up the air bars to lots of exotic locations uh, and having lots of minions to do my bidding and like becoming this creative god in the marketplace. Anyway, uh, I was working what's called the, uh, the twilight shift at the time and the uh, 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 guy came along. I didn't know who he was. A uh, guy came along and said, oh, can we have a word? And I was like, is this it? And so uh, this little guy, wasn't very tall, 
um, wasn't very impressive or imposing looking. But he took me out, and he took me out, and uh, no whining and dining in this setting. We got to sit on this picnic bench in the middle of a car park. So, and that kind of set the tone for the rest of the day. Uh, he had no idea really what to say to me. It was a kind of, uh, it was a spur of the moment thing. And uh, uh, um, as we talked, he had no idea what to say, what to do. And the, my dreams of climbing up the corporate ladder and becoming this, uh, um, this, this glorious tech board, you know, that, that would wow millions with my presentations, it was utterly shattered. And I realized uh, that, that right then that I might not be going where I thought I was uh, be going, and uh, um, it was and I blame this guy, this little short-sighted, small-minded guy who, who failed to do anything with this potential. Um, I wonder if you've ever met a celebrity or someone famous or uh, uh, someone that you were looking forward to meeting, and then they turned out to be utterly disappointing. I once met Bob Geldof. Do you know how he pushed in front of me in a queue at the cinema and I uh, took the last seats to the the film I wanted to see. Thanks, Bob. I remember meeting uh, this multi-million pound, uh, uh, multi-millionaire lawyer. You know, he was getting in some amazing high-profile cases. And you sit down and you imagine you're just going to bask in, in wisdom and knowledge and insight into uh, community and, and social dynamics. And uh, essentially, uh, he was uh, uh, arrogant and he was argumentative and he was a little bit of a racist. And I was like, oh, that was a bit disappointing. Uh, another time I met this uh, uh, punk band that I went to see. And uh, they were really good on stage and excited, got the crowd jumping anywhere. We got to have a, uh, a refreshments afterwards with them. And they were probably the dullest and most conventional kids you'll ever meet. And time and time again, you have these great ideas of people that you want to meet, and then you find they are not who they are cracked up to be. They, are, they uh, fall flat in your expectations. Today, we are going to be talking about meeting with God, and I can tell you it's more wonderful than your expectations. Whatever you dream of meeting God would be like, it is better than that. He is not smaller than your dreams. He is not smaller than your expectations. He's not even at the same level as them. He is better and bigger and greater, and it should cause our bellies to rumble in excitement, if that is the same. So we're looking at the story of Moses, and we know Moses killed someone, fled his people and the Egyptians because they can accuse him of being a murderer, and he's found his home amongst the nomads. Uh, and he's got a, a, a wonderful wife in Zipporah, uh, this uh, uh, lovely newborn called Gershon, and uh, they are just hanging out together. Uh, Jethro is loaded and they are having a, a good life. But even as he's enjoying this domestic bliss, the Israelites in, in Egypt are still crying out. They are in pain and agony. They uh, basically are undergoing a deliberate genocide by the Egyptians who want to eradicate these people who they see as a thorn in their, slide, in their side. And as Moses is happy, and as the Israelites cry out, God moves. And uh, uh, this is one of the most momentous uh, 
times in Scripture. It's one that people keep harking back to, and uh, quite rightly. If you've got a Bible, it would be good to open it. And it says this in Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness. And he came to Horeb, the mountain of God, and there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why? The bush does not burn up. So in today's story, we've got an 18 year old Moses. He lived 40 years in Egypt and he lived uh, 40 years uh, with the uh, Midianites and he's in charge of his father-in-law's sheep. This is the, the wealth of the household. This is uh, 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 a, a really big deal to be in charge of, the, uh, of this flock. And as he leads the flock, he leads them further and further out. He goes beyond the usual territories, beyond the normal stomping grounds, and he goes to new places. And uh, he finds himself on this mountain, uh, uh, this mountain that we will become very familiar with because it becomes, uh, uh, we, we know it now as Mount Sinai. Uh, but at, at this moment it didn't have uh, all the association we uh, have put upon it. And he comes to Mount Horeb and um, right there on the side of a mountain exists a plant. A uh, plant riddled with thorns and it was a common sight, a shrub. He says, there is nothing remarkable about a shrub. I hope you agree with me there. It's something that he would have seen every day. Um, but this shrub was slightly remarkable in that it was roaring and spitting. It was a flame. It was on fire. It was burning away. And this is unremarkable too because fire uh, uh, sweeps through undergrowth and uh, uh, bushes all the time. Only this morning I was in Buckham Park and there was a nice bird patch, not where a load of vandals and Molotov cocktails somewhere, but it was just a, a moment of natural fire clearing away and allowing the sunlight to bring newness and the nutrients to be released. And it's just a process uh, of an ecosystem renewing itself. And so a bush on fire is nothing. It is just part of the life cycle of the ecosystem. But this was slightly different again. It was a bush on fire, yes. But the flames weren't consuming. It was as if they were running on a, a different fuel. As if something was going on that the eye couldn't quite perceive. And Moses looks at the sight and he realises it is not what he has become accustomed to. It is not just a bush on fire, it is a bush with some sort of other flame. And so Moses has a choice here. He can get on with his day job. He's, he is responsible for Jethro's sheep. This is a, a, a responsible calling and something that he would have felt the weight uh, of calling uh, uh, to do. Or he could go and look at a burning bush. I don't know how many of you have had a busy day and you've seen something slightly out of the ordinary and then dismissed it and just got on. Because it's just so easy to do. We have jobs to do, itineraries to fill, schedules to meet. But Moses 
chooses to look at the bush a little more. The world is opening up. We are being encouraged to go out and spend our money, to go out, to work, to return, to socialising. I am dead pleased to be back at K2 swimming again. It is fantastic. And the world is opening up and we are being encouraged to get this economy going and become social again and make sure uh, uh, that we become proper uh, um, cogs in our capitalist system. But we have a choice again of how we do this. We can just take up everything we put down a year ago or we can do things differently. We can get carried away with business. Um, we can get carried away with busyness by our old routines and by a myriad of demands on our time because they're coming. If they're not quite here yet, there will be all sorts of forces at play on your life which will mean you'll live out these old schedules again. And so we start thinking of how much time have I got? Can I fit that in? I would like to do that. How do I squeeze that in? And our minds start to reverberate. We've got uh, swimming lessons and piano lessons and home improvements. And uh, we aren't even officially out of lockdown. And already the Taylor household uh, is feeling uh, this pressure. And the question is, how are you going to live? How are you going to cope? How are you going to order your life? Because it's your choice. You can live your life so you can tick a load of things off during the day. And when we live like that, you do it unthinkingly. I don't know whether you've ever found a routine or a schedule. You barely need to think at all. You uh, get up, go downstairs, have breakfast, have a shower, go to work, come back, watch TV and go to sleep. And your mind hasn't even engaged. And you don't need to feel and you don't need to laugh, and you don't need to pray. You can get through a day just by relying on routine, by doing stuff. And at the end of the day, you go, oh, look at all I've achieved, look at all I've accomplished. When really you've just sort of sunk in to a mindless routine that perhaps is doing you no good at all. And in this scene of the burning bush, God would interrupt Moses' life and he would say, come, come and have a look. And I think God does the same for each of us. He says, you know what, I know you've got stuff to do. I know you've got busyness to accomplish. I know you've got all sorts of plans and schemes that you want, but come aside for a sec. Draw a breath. Take a heartbeat. Become more than just someone that does stuff. Um, a famous preacher called uh, Spurgeon said this. By our own thoughts, the Lord talks with us. If we will be still before him, he will prepare our hearts. And in silence, we shall hear his voice. It would be a strange thing if God could not and did not communicate with his own children. And it is still more strange and sad that though he does speak, his people are slow of heart and dull of 
hearing. When was the last time you heard from God? Our God speaks to us in providence, in nature, in choice favours we hear his soft and tender tones. In chastisement and rebukes we hear the sterner notes. But every sound is full of love. Every sound is full of love. The Lord has ways of taking his children apart and speaking to them upon their beds. In the wilderness, he speaks to the heart. This is the top of uh, change degree ring with my, uh, uh, with my family. And uh, Miles, right at the top, said, it's like a beautiful painting, isn't it, Dad? Now, my boys aren't, um, they're not accustomed to coming up with artistic or poetic turns of phrase. They do not wander through the lilies of the valleys and marvel at their artistry. But there was that moment on top, where uh, Mars was like, this is amazing, Dad. And that is a six-year-old. A six-year-old whose only interests are Minecraft and uh, bubblegum. So the Lord has ways of taking his children apart and speaking to them upon their beds. In the wilderness he speaks to the heart. He can talk with us in nature. Have you not heard him in the thunder, in the roaring of the sea? Yes, we hear him not only in the dash of Niagara, but in the ripple of the brook and the smiling of a primrose on its bank. The Lord is never voiceless, except to the earless soul. Let me read that challenging statement again. The Lord is never voiceless except to the earless soul. He speaks. Let us hear. God encourages, guides and disciplines us in scripture, in preaching, in worship and fellowship. All these church type activities. But God does not only turn up when we're doing church stuff. We should not only pay attention when we're doing churchy things. God would send the burning bushes to say, hey, I know you're in the middle of something, but can I have your attention? It's up to you. You can turn away to me or get on with fussing with Jethro's flock. We need to learn to have Moses' curiosity, to have his appreciation of something new coming. We have to learn to be able to still ourselves, not get taken away by the mechanisms of work and socialising and just the mechanics of living. We need to be alert, because that's the only way we're going to enter that deeper knowledge of God. Who wants a shallow relationship with him? Who wants to get to heaven and then for God to go, well, we better start to get to know each other, we're going to spend eternity together. Who doesn't want to have already established that relationship with God right here and right now? It's always struck me, the Jesus' favourite place, it was a garden. Jesus' favourite place was not the synagogue or his parent house or anything else. It was the garden where he could go and pray. It was there when his soul was uh, aching at the thought of the crucifixion of his head. It was at the garden that he went to pray. 
During the week, I spoke to one of our guys who's been in hospital recently. Uh, and uh, uh, as I was talking to him, it was obvious hospital was not a delight. It was not a blessing from on high. And as they kind of wrestled uh, uh, with sort of uh, the craziness of the NHS, with people in nearby beds, with COVID, with other people dying, he spoke about looking out the window and seeing the sun. And he was struck that the same sun that signed through that dull hospital window was the same sun that shone on his Jesus when he lived. And he found that helpful and he found that kind of stopped him in his tracks. And I really like that. You know, it's, the sun is always there. It's not something new, but suddenly it has new meaning. It has a moment of poignancy, a moment of worth, a moment of... Oh, I needed that. Even this morning, uh, one of our congregation is down on the coast and they posted a video. What did they post a video on? Just the calm waters on the beach. And there was a peace that they could feel in that tide, just as they stood on the seashore with the gentle waves lapping up. There is worth in looking beyond church activities for a spiritual encounter. God is not the waves, God is not the sun, but he speaks to us through creation. Theologians call it general revelation, something that we can all appreciate. Possibly my favourite pastor, Eugene Peterson, says this. Um, he, he seems to have like a mountain retreat, which sounds marvellous, I think he inherited it. And he says this, this is the holy ground from which choke cherry blossoms scent the spring air, and giant ponderoso pines keep sentinel watch in the forest. It opens out on an immense glacier-cut horizon against which the invisibilities of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit form a believing imagination where the inside is larger than the outside. This is where the bulk of my work in my pastoral vocation either began, was clarified or came to fullness. Schools were useful as background, but they were never the main thing. Teachers and professors were significant, but not at the centre. Friends and books made their mark, but only as voices in a larger conversation. This place is the holy ground. It is my Midian burning bush. It is my horror, my Patmos island. This has kept me grounded and to which I have repeatedly returned. I have lived 60 years of my adult life in cities and suburbs, in other places, but most of those years I have returned for at least a month, sometimes more, once even for 12 months, to clarify and deepen my pastoral vocation on this sacred ground. And even when I was not here physically, the internalised space, it grounded me. And it is from this place that I am now writing my witness. The burning bushes are cool to allow ourselves to be drawn away from the chaos and demands and noise and crescendos of our daily life, of our work, of our play, 
to a place of solitude where God can speak, where it is just you and him. And the cry is that you can come close to God and then even serve others because of what you know through him. If you've got a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 3. It says this. Exodus chapter 3, verse 4. We're continuing the story. When the Lord saw that Moses had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. As Moses moves towards the flaming bush, words come. Come from this bush. And the first thing is spoken is Moses' name. This bush isn't just any bush. It hides and covers the presence of God. What does God say to this murdering shepherd? It just says his name, Moses, Hebrew for being drawn out of the Nile. Moses, Moses is known. This is not going to be a meeting of strangers. Moses doesn't have to say anything. God knows the very number of hairs on his head. This shepherd doesn't need to go through his backstory, his history, all his hang-ups and preoccupations. God knows him by name. And then we are told this place is Kodesh. We're told it is separate. It is different down. It's not because the bush is rare or impressive or the fire is new and never sporting. It is because God's presence is in this place. It is sacred and holy. As a kid, I used to wander in and out of lots of other kids' parents' houses. You, uh, um, it was in the days when your kind of parents were happy for you to go out and then you got lost in all your other uh, mates back gardens. And uh, you'd always come across this moment where you were going, welcome into the house, perhaps you were going through just to the back garden. And there was that moment of, okay, is this a house where I can take my shoes off? Is this a house where they're gonna have to see my holy socks? Or see that all the dirt that I've gone through during the day has actually uh, just gone inside my shoe and it's gonna tip over everywhere. Is this gonna be a place uh, uh, where I'm going to have to be careful about how I behave. Um, I remember uh, uh, once um, sort of uh, um, breaking a sort of uh, uh, one of those fake blood capsules on someone's uh, uh, floor, and it was all wipeable off. But the parent went absolutely ache, and she was a parent that made you take your shoes off before you come into the, the house. And it's an interesting moment because it's a hassle for a kid and you also know you've got to be on high alert because you don't know what else, what other domestic faux pas you're going to commit. 
But what you're doing is you're coming to someone's cherished home. You know, it's not somewhere that they just treat as a workplace, not somewhere where they just uh, dump all their rubbish. It's not somewhere they're passing through or uh, uh, treat uh, casually, but it's cherished, it's valued, it's clean, it's washed, it's loved. And you would come in and you'd take your muddy trainers off, stinking and river water and whatever else, and you'd come in and you'd have a soft carpet and your feet would suddenly be in sort of uh, heaven as they tread on the nice thick path as suddenly you didn't have to worry about uh, all the different forces of nature coming against you, you didn't have to worry about hurting yourself or anything else, you were in a place of safety, you are in a place of security, you are in a place of cleanliness, you are in a place of love, you were in someone's home. There were lots of different explanations of why Moses had to remove his sandals to go into the God's presence. But this is my favourite one today. That God, that Moses was coming home. That Moses had to take his shoes off because God had the carpet down, he had a nice clean house, he had a place of love and welcome and Moses didn't need his shoes anymore. He wasn't going to hurt his feet on the floor, he wasn't going to stub his toe on bracken and rocks, he wasn't going to get uh, wet and cold and dirty. This was a place of safety and security and homeliness and he is welcomed in. And as Moses finds himself not just in a physical home with his wife and kid and Jethro, but he finds his spiritual home in the presence of a loving God. And then the voice says, Welcome, Moses. I am the God. I am the God of your father. I am the God of your ancestors. I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Remember all the promises I give to them? Well, you are part of that, and you are mine. And Moses' expectations suddenly skyrocket. Okay, things are escalating very quickly. He has to take his shoes off. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He knows things happen when that God turns up. And uh, he feels totally undone. He feels totally exposed. Suddenly, the sandals that he was wearing becomes a kind of metaphor for his well-being, and he hides his face. He knows he can't look at this God who is so powerful, so awesome, so majestic. It is more than he can handle, more than he can process to look on the face of God. And as Moses stands exposed, unprotected to the promise-keeping God, it is inevitable that Moses' life is going to change. It is inevitable that his cosy existence with wife and child will have to be turned up again. Moses is going to be stretched. The people of God are going to be helped. I wonder when your last counter with that God was. I wonder you were just existing on an encounter you had perhaps when you first became a Christian. Perhaps you had one a few years ago and you're content with that. Listen to this in James chapter 4, the last the Bible readings. It says this. Love this. Submit yourselves to God then, 
Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Resist the devil and he runs away. Draw near to God and he come near you. Hear that symmetry. Put off the devil, put on God. Come near to God and he will come near you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. This clean home needs you to be clean. Grieve, mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And what will he do? He will kick you in the teeth and shove you downstairs. No. He will lift you up. He will raise you up. And you realise the dirt and the mud and the mess that we get ourselves into. And he goes, come on. Come in. Come in with the thick pile carpet and the coffee on constant brew and the freshly made macaroons on the hot plate. It's a case of come in, be welcome. This is a place where you are loved and safe and you are just going to be uh, enjoyed for who you are. People, you may have noticed, don't become believers by clever arguments. They don't. You can't come up with a clever argument and will usher someone into the kingdom of God. You also, and Jesus knew this, you can't bring people into the kingdom of God by impressive miracles. You know, the, the heavens can turn to fire and people will still find some sort of meteorological explanation for it. What it needs is an encounter with God. When people discover and stay near to God, they have that faith that is healthy. When they allow God to speak, when they stop messing about with Jethro's flock and go over to have a look at the burning bush, they will encounter a God that loves them and they will never be the same again. That meeting is the most precious thing in the world. It's the most precious thing to enjoy. If you are ignorant of that precious encounter, the invitation, James says, is still there. Come near. Don't be a stranger. Don't just endure the hassles of the devil. Come near to God. Come near to your true home. Come to a place where there's hot coffee and cake. If you know Jesus, and looking around the room and the uh, people streaming, and I think most of us do, remember those previous encounters you've had with God. Cherish them and seek them out again because they are your bread and butter. You're not called to just know uh, God close once and then forever be set adrift on that one experience. His love and kindness, grace and peace would be you all the days of your life if you would let it, if you would stop messing about with the sheep. I am no Pentecostal powerhouse. I would love to be, I would love you all to be able to come upstairs and expect me to somehow zap you and see God work miracles. I'd love to fill amphitheatres with people with my uh, um, uh, wonderful prose and language and have an international ministry that touches millions. But that is not my lot, at least not for now. But you know what? I cry a lot. I cry a lot. And I don't like it particularly. 
in my study when I encounter a big good bit of scripture that I want to bring for communion, what do I do? I cry. And then I have to I move my head when Sam comes and offers me a cup of tea. No, I'm not crying, you're crying. <laughs> when I'm reading particular bits, I can't help but come out with tears. In worship, when Tim's stringing the guitar, and it's the same song we've sung for a thousand years, I feel the tears well up. Even in sermons, ones that I practice, and that to the rest of you are dry and untap, I can't help but feel the tears rise up. It seems to me that when God comes near to Kevin, there is a spiritual overload. And I, and I can't contain the emotion. Even though I'd love to stay cool, I'd love my face to be serene, I'd love to be in charge of all my faculties, and for you think uh, I'm the most accomplished speaker uh, that you've ever come across, but no, I cry and I mumble and uh, I get uh, uh, itchy and irritated as my body falls apart. But I think those are the moments when my shoes are off, when I'm vulnerable, when I'm home, when I don't have to pretend, when I receive. And, uh, oh no, I had a book and it's gone. Um, so the, there's this great, great quote from uh, The Cross and the Switchblade. Um, and uh, I just came across it while I was reading it recently. And it was, it was essentially that, that basically great works of God always come with tears. And he was saying all the teenagers that would come to uh, these rallies in New York, they would resist it because they were afraid of tears. And David Wilkins was, was saying that essentially tears are that moment of vulnerability. Tears are that moment when you take your shoes off. Tears are that moment when God really works in, where all your defences are gone and suddenly you are exposed. When suddenly God sees you for not who you'd like to be seen as or who everyone else sees you as, but who God sees you and as God sees you. And the invitation today is to take your shoes off. Don't come to God with that cool, calm, collected exterior where everyone thinks you've got it together. Don't come to him with thoughts of confidence and aspiration that, you know what, God's just going to bless you and life is just going to get richer. Come to him with your snotty noses and your running eyes, with your uh, babbling mouths and your uh, um, blotchy faces. Now some of you, crying isn't the thing, but there will be something that means you take your feet, take your shoes off. There will be something that makes you vulnerable. There will be something that is that moment of expression of vulnerability, an expression of God, I come to you as I am, without any protection, without anything to stop me stubbing my toe. I'm looking forward to that plush carpet and that hot coffee. So I'd like you all to stand, both online uh, and in person, and I want to close in prayer.
And if you can raise your hands, uh, that's as uh, much as I've got to get you into that place. Almighty God, we stand in your presence. God, I pray for those that don't know you, that are somewhat um, surprised at the talk of encountering God. Lord God, I pray that as they maybe even only take a heartbeat, that you would draw near to them as they inquire after you. Lord God, I pray that you would meet them in a way that does their soul good. And Heavenly Father, I pray for us. We who have walked with you, maybe just for a year, or uh, maybe for all our lives, or so it seems. Lord God, I pray that we would never allow ourselves to wear shoes in your presence. That we would never protect ourselves from what you would do in our lives. That we would come to you open-handed and open-hearted. Heavenly Father, I thank you uh, that uh, we don't need to be great, because you're great enough for all of us. We just need to come into your presence without our shoes off. Lord God, I pray for every person uh, um, in this building and at home, that you would show them how to be vulnerable. And in that place of vulnerability, I pray that you would meet their deepest needs, that you would respond to the cries of their heart, that they would know the peace and holiness of your presence, that, Heavenly Father, you uh, would just knock their sobs. Lord God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.